I know and love so many people in the rural community in small town America. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in those places about how to live with each other long-term, about how to support each other. And I hate to lose that if we continue to lose small town America. Like there's a lot of value there for me. And neighbors, they have to get along, right? Because they're there in thick or thin with each other and they have been for eons. So there's a lot to be learned there. I think as liberals, we can sometimes be pretty elitist. We can do the cancel culture thing, or we can just cut people out of our lives if we don't agree with them. And and that's just traditionally not how humans have survived well for a long period of time. They've had to get along. And so I think it sort of goes against our evolutionary grain as well to sort of cut people out. And yet with the technology in between us, it's so much easier. Welcome everybody to the podcast relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Prebo Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Mending Political Divides. Yeah, it's a timely subject, especially here in the United States. And I think it will be relative to my international listeners because this is happening all over the world. So I think uh, the foundational elements are the same of what we need to do. And I have a conversation with a reoccurring guest, Lee Warren. And we dive into this subject with each other. And I think everybody needs to ask a lot of questions around this to themselves before they can have dialogues with others. You know, we throw around all kinds of labeling and terms, whether it's liberal, Democrat, conservative, Republican, Trump supporters. We throw a lot of words around, a lot of labeling A lot of cancel culture right now is a big terminology. We're not having curious dialogues. You know, a lot of us are in what we call primitive brains, you know, which feed contempt and paranoia, uh, hatred or feelings of moral superiority. And when that primitive brain, say, perceives a threat, whether it's real or imagined, it gets activated immediately. And what happens Empathy shuts off, the capacity to empathize. And when we don't have empathy, um, it really limits our levels of relating. We need to have more curiosity and more interest and more openness. So let me tell you a little bit more about Lee. Lee Warren is a sustainability professional with 25 years of experience envisioning, designing, and living innovative solutions to organic food systems, community, and sustainability education. She was the executive director of the Organic Grower School, a nonprofit based in Asheville, North Carolina, from 2013 through 2020. She's also the founder and managing partner of SOIL, School of Integrative Living, 
which teaches organic food production, regenerative systems, and community living, and was also a small-scale pasture-based dairy farmer for 15 years. Lee is a writer, a teacher, a food activist, with an avid interest in rural wisdom, sustainable economics, conscious dying, and community. And she has been a friend of mine for about 18 years. So this is a big topic, and I want to have a few more podcasts, especially around how to mend relationships around this. A lot of personal relationships and family relationships are very strained. We talk about it a little bit, but I want to also have a podcast that dives into it more because I have many clients that are struggling with this also. Okay, folks, here we go. My conversation with Lee Warren, Mending Political Divides. Let's talk about it. Welcome, welcome, Lee. Welcome back. We haven't done this for, I think it was two years ago that we did a couple. So thanks for coming back into the studio. So my pleasure. Yeah, we had a yummy meal. Yeah. And we'll get into that maybe on another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that. Okay. So I'm so glad that you wanted to talk about uh, the subject that I think is so timely. I love that you wrote an article. It was back uh, October 10th right? And uh, elephantjournal.com was called, Can We Love Our Political Enemies? What spurred you to want to get that out and, and to share your, your feelings and thoughts? I had this experience on Facebook where, um, you know, I'm sort of surrounded by liberal progressive folks, mostly white folks, but some folks of color. And a friend of mine posted some name-calling, pretty vile comment. I don't even remember at this point what it was about Trump and Trump supporters. And it just was painful for me that we got to this place where we were slinging, you know, slurs and criticisms and judgments at other people at a whole segment of population. And I thought, wow, I, I think I might hold my liberal friends up to a little bit higher level of standard for empathy and um, wanting to call that out. And so then I posted my own question to my own friends on Facebook about, hey, can, can we have empathy for others that don't think like us and don't vote like us? And it turned into a sort of 200 comment string. And I really curated a lot of the responses and I'll encourage people um, to have a real, actual, real dialogue instead of slinging at each other. And it, and it, I learned so much from it. So many people said so many things on there that I learned about that it turned into an article uh, that I wanted to capture some of the thoughts that I had, some of the best and distill some of the best thinking uh, into an article. And that's where it came from. Mm. Did you get people with a eye-opening experiences that they were open to read that or were they still wedded to their beliefs before? Cause I think that's what happens when there's such a divide is that we look for articles or we look for material that just reinforces our belief system instead of opening up to other aspects of how we want to think and, and, and connect differently. I think the way this question was asked and that it was really authentically asking a question, it, it, um, it sort of 
created the atmosphere for people to be somewhat contemplative and a little bit curious. And there were a couple of exceptions where folks said, absolutely not. This is hogwash. I don't believe this. They're all bad people. I have nothing else to say, you know, stomp off. But the folks who ended up hanging in there in the conversation, in the social media conversation, it ended up being quite rich. And folks have come back later even to that post and said, you know, I spent an hour reading this thing because it's one of the real true dialogues that I've seen on here. So for whatever reason, some combination of magic and intention, um, it ended up being uh, a break from what you're talking about, which is my mind's already made up. There's nothing you can do to change it. And, And I think I'm guessing you know, social media, all of media in a way promotes that kind of thinking, right? That I'm in this camp and that's that. And, and it's, it's just, it feels so like such an unhealthy emotional and relational stance to take. And do you have that experience, personal experience with family and friends that eye opening experience of like, wow, you, you think that way and how can we relate differently? Are people coming to you in that way also of you think this way? Can we relate differently? You know, with just that canceling of people are, you will talk about social media, but people are just canceling people, unfriending them. But you and I know, I mean, we've, we've lived in in community life and with that, we rely on our neighbors and so forth. And we live in a rural area where there's people that are different political persuasions. But what the commonality is we want to, we want to help each other. We want to be neighbors to support each other. What's been happening with you and in, in, on a personal level with those relationships? Yeah. I mean, I think for a long time I was in that same knee-jerk, liberal, I can't hear anything but my own shared reality, my own echo chamber, like that, that really had been true for me. I've been there. And Maybe, I don't know, maybe I got so saturated with that point of view or perspective. Um, I think part of what happened is the 2016 um, U.S. presidential election where we were all quite shocked that Hillary Clinton lost and Donald Trump won. I think it started dawning on me, the echo chamber effect, the idea that I was surrounded by everybody who thought like I did and that all of the media was you know, carefully curated and carefully um, projected to me for me to believe a certain thing. And I, I sort of felt at that point, like, oh, I'm really, I'm being formed. I'm being formed by the media. I'm being told what to think. I'm agreeing with all my friends and we're, and, and we're getting so solid in that awareness that anything that challenges that we want to reject it immediately. I, there's some, there's something about the combination of being isolated and lots of social media and lots of media influence, I think that has created that. And so it dawned on me in 2016 that I was in in an echo chamber and I specifically decided I wanted to break out of that. Mm. And yes, I think what you're saying is also true, which is I'm lucky enough to live in a rural community where I have gotten a taste of what it's like to actually need other people and have to live with other people, even if I disagree with them. So I've also built the muscle in the real world that way. And it's interesting because I wonder, I mean, this is going on in families. They have to live with each other, whether it's spouses that have political differences or I work a lot with adult 
people that are having challenges with their adult parents that have a different political persuasion. And these are people that love each other, but are canceling each other out. They are having such a difficult time having civil conversations. They're questioning the person's character instead of a certain belief system. And I get it around values and so forth. But when, you know, the question about, you know, can we love each other? For me, it came in, as we talked about, I have, my parents are of a different political persuasion than me. And it was really difficult at times over the years. And I had a hard time and trying to convince them until all of a sudden I came to terms with, I'm not going to change anybody, especially the way that I was going about it, telling them that I was, didn't believe that, that they were wrong. Here's evidence. I wasn't being curious and interested in really what they were thinking. If I was, I wanted to counter it with a reason why they shouldn't think this way. So I think one of the aspects is even just a basic communication skill of not being interested and curious that we are different people, period. Different thoughts, different ideas, different experiences, and we're not making room for each other. Yeah, it might actually be harder to tolerate when people are closer to us, right? It might actually be easier to contemplate this whole thing in, you know, in the realm of the community or the society or, you know, even my acquaintances or friends. But when it's in your own house or in your own family, I actually think that's a harder road to hoe. And um, you said earlier about having boundaries or rules about when politics gets talked about, having some structures in place so that you can remember your love for each other um, without diving into those morass of politics. But, you know, to think about nonviolent communication for a minute and think about, like, what is the need beneath a lot of our desires for certain political characters, right? And, 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 those are universal needs. So if we have a family member that, for example, is a you know, Trump supporter or Republican, and you think like, well, what what is it that they're wanting or needing? You know, is it security? Is it attention? Is it uh, freedom, liberation, you know, any number of things? And we can almost always relate to other human beings on the realm of need. It's the strategies we get really tied up in a knot about, which is, I understand that you have this need, but why is that person your solution? And I don't know, sometimes it comes to down to like, well, that's the only option. Mm-hmm. You know? That person might not be my choice, but it's... The other choice isn't aligned with my need. Yeah. Yeah. But very seldom do we ask people what their needs are mm-hmm. and get underneath that. We so much want to say what our needs are, and if they're contradictory to our needs, then it's automatically their needs aren't important. And it is so difficult when it is within family. And for me, when I realized just the amount of energy that it takes to push against resistance, as opposed to just accepting people for where they are and to try to find the overlap, that's for me when it when it shifted with my parents. I wanted to just... I just wanted to find where we had commonalities. And, it, and it ha- if it happened to be that we were going to talk about uh, what they were reading, what magazines that they liked, or what movies, that's where we were going. I wasn't going to go down the end of constant disconnection. And it's brought a lot of peace in my relationship with my mother and, and stepfather. Even though there's this part where I know where we can go only so far, I'm only known so far, and probably... I have a blockage to know them in a a certain way. 
but it's the love is still there as opposed to saying I love them, but I wasn't treating them lovingly. And I think that's the one part around friends and close family is if we say we love these people, are we being loving? Because love is a verb. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these things are tricky, right? And hard to, to, easier to talk about than they are to do. I mean, I have a dear, dear friend that is a Trump supporter and he was born in communist Russia. And I completely understand, you know, given his history and context and how he's talked about, you know, his terror of the state owning, the state owning things, which is, you know, this the socialist, quote unquote, socialist agenda that gets put forward at, in many ways as rhetoric, that that's what the Democrats are about. But it scared him enough to not want to vote for the Democrats. And, you know, it doesn't matter what I how I interpret that or what I think or what the definition of socialism is. It's like it's coming from a place of fear for him. He grew up in that world. I have absolutely no way to understand what that could have been like. So I have an avenue to love him. You know, he's a gay person and living this alternative life. And yet that scared him enough to want to not vote for the Democrats. And I think like, hey, that's legitimate. Even though other aspects were going against his best interest. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's what's really interesting, too, is that viewpoint of people say, but this is actually going against your best interest. But there's enough of, because the fear is interesting. There's some psychological studies that show conservative people have a more active amygdala and so therefore more motivated around fear and then there's another aspect where more liberal people have an activated sense of needing to have intellect knowledge to verify their belief system so that just kind of makes sense that in some way that we're driven more biologically also in the way that we have discourse than it is maybe in some way philosophically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of voting against a group that's voting against their own best interest, I have come to slightly cringe at that phrase because it's often used by progressives, whatever we're calling ourselves these days, (laughs) to hurl at people that think differently than them, right? Like these poor country hicks, they're so backwards, they're voting against their own best interest when that's not how they see it. And they're filled with whatever um, beautiful, wonderful intelligence they're filled with. It's different than other people's, but... What are you hearing from a gay friend that would vote from a Republican standpoint, knowing that some of the agenda or the policies is trying to take away gay rights? Right. Well, in in his particular case, it's more about the free market, right? That's a higher priority priority. for him. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I think, medical autonomy um, and autonomy in other ways. And whatever we think these parties stand for, do they really stand for it? I mean, I would say liberals vote against their own best interests, too, because the people they are voting for aren't going to move the needle significantly on their core issues, which are climate change or... Um, justice in certain cases, there's there's a lot more talk than there is action. But we, we don't have that many options, right? We have two options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most of us vote against our own best interest. And so to imagine that one group is doing that and the other group isn't doing that, I think is myopic. Was there any point that you just got grounded in not wanting to have a lot of intellect 
an intellectual dialogue going back and forth, but you really wanted to get back to the just the humanity of caring for each other and loving for each other. Because some of the the posts that I read and and your your um, article that you wrote, it had a very grounded aspect of we're human beings. We need to get along. We need to understand each other. We need to just love each other on a basic level. Was there anything that happened that just really pivoted that grounded focus? Well, it certainly feels way better in my body to be curious about a group of people or a person in particular than to hate them. That feels way better in my body. And then I have a lot of access to choices at that point when I'm not really contracted with presupposition and hatred. Now, one could argue that's an extraordinary place of privilege. You know, it's possible and likely that my black and brown brothers and sisters don't maybe have that option, right, to have curiosity because their lives are threatened all the time from systemic injustice issues. So I do have a lot of privilege. I'm not in that position on a daily basis. And because of that privilege, I feel like I can use my curiosity to build bridges and coalitions. Yeah, I think that once I started going down that path of like, I'm curious about the humanity of these folks and even more so is specifically curious about the motivations and desires of the people who are supporting someone other than who I would naturally support. It actually opened up a whole world of interest to me instead of feeling blocked or closed. I sort of felt open and engaged. So that just f feeds on itself, really. I always wonder why human beings don't go for commonalities first instead of differences. You know, when I'm working with couples, one aspect that I want them to first start off with is like, tell me why you're together. Tell, tell me what you like about the other person. What do you appreciate about it? just to get the basis of like, not that the other person is the enemy or that there's lack or there's things that are wrong. And in some way, I think that because we're animals, we scan the environment for danger, right? We, we don't scan the environment for, oh, this is wonderful, I'm safe, no problem. We don't scan for safety, we scan for danger. But we do that in relationships so much. And I think this is what's causing a lot of the rift also of how we just even relate, whether it's on social media, in our, in our communities, or in our own family, is we don't look for commonalities. It's like, do you guys drink the same beer? Do you, do, you, do you cheer for the same sports team? Like, let's start something that has some commonality. And I think when we dehumanize people like uh, happened in World War II and so forth, and we don't see the commonality is when it gets really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about the negativity bias, right? Rick Hansen writes about this a lot, which is that our fight or flight mechanism would rather have us see danger a thousand times when it wasn't there <laughs> instead of not see danger when it is there, right? So we have this negativity bias that keeps us alive and keeps us safe, but right, it does a lot of damage. And I do think that the media is in business to exacerbate our fear of the other, right? It, this is talk radio since the 80s, Rush Limbaugh and other, you know, they find the most outrageous stories about liberals, you know, the loss of common sense or this snowflake liberal stuff. And, and they send it out to their conservative media who's just aghast at how it's possible that liberals could be so backwards and ridiculous. And, 
you know, I know from sitting over here that that's not, they've cherry picked one most ridiculous story. And so I can make the assumption that I'm also getting those same ridiculous, exaggerated, far extreme stories of my quote unquote political enemies. And I can maybe start to pop a little tiny hole in the bubble of those people are so X, Y, Z. So yeah, I think it it takes some vigilance these days to not be convinced of what we see and hear because it's suspect. And mm-hmm. I think to your point, in almost every case where this happens, where you sit people from different political perspectives down in a room and you give them some support to talk to each other, in almost all cases, people can see eye to eye about sometimes significant things, sometimes just simple things, but they find in that one-on-one way, they can find the love and humanity in each other and even form friendships and deep respect. So it's, it's this idea of we're going to be distant from the problem and we're going to make all this stuff and up in our minds. And, and that has just been detrimental to us as, as a human community. Mm-hmm. So even the aspect of not having physical proximity to each other right now, you know, whether it's through social media or because of the aspect of a pandemic that we're supposed to physical distance from each other, it doesn't allow us to have that face-to-face contact to know if I'm going to be, if I'm going to be an asshole, I got to be an asshole in front of your face, not hide behind a computer screen. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. I think people act very differently when they're together physically to perhaps work something out or give each other space. And That is not happening. As a matter of fact, it's exacerbating with what we have with physical distancing. Yeah. And you talked earlier about people in rural community. And I think that's been one of my inspirations these days in trying to be curious about what's happening with Trump supporters, you know, is that I know and love so many people in the rural community in small town America. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in those places about how to live with each other long-term, about how to support each other. And I hate to lose that if we continue to lose small town America. Like there's a lot of value there for me and neighbors, they have to, they have to get along, right? Because they're there in thick or thin with each other and they have been for eons. So there's a lot to be learned there. I think as liberals, we can sometimes be pretty elitist. We can, do the cancel culture thing, Mm. or we can just cut people out of our lives if we don't agree with them. And and that's just traditionally not how humans have survived well for a long period of time. They've had to get along. And so I think it sort of goes against our evolutionary grain as well to sort of cut people out. And, um, And yet with the technology in between us, it's so much easier. Do you feel that liberals cut conservatives out more than conservatives cut liberals out? I mean, I don't know the statistics of that, but I will say that I'm mostly surrounded by liberal community and I have a handful of conservative friends and it's actually quite easier for me to talk to my conservative friends about differences than it is for my liberals. They they are very threatened and this idea that, wow, there could be, you know, some some ways in which these country folk, rural folk, small town folk are hurting and Trump is seeing them or, you know, and, and it's no, these are racist people and there's no salvaging them. And, and this is, you know, there's no excuse for this and this is all their agenda. Like 
there's just no traction. There's no room. Yeah, it never, it never goes anywhere positive when the response is, no, I, I disagree. <laughs> you know, that, that answer to anything, it never goes anywhere. Um, so even in the language, the aspect of, you know, how to have curiosity, can you tell me more about what you're thinking about? I didn't know that. Is there, is there something that you want to tell me more? And what's interesting too, I had a friend that started to ask, his conservative friends, if there was any sources that they felt he could relate to that had maybe his intellectual scientific way of thinking that he would be able to look at their resources. So there was a curiosity to, to bridge. And a lot of times there in the language, there is absolutely no curiosity because especially with name calling, you know, when it, whether it's a, just naming an enemy or, start saying that you're stupid, you're ignorant, imbecile, whatever that is. And, and unfortunately, you know, from the liberal side, we would hear that from the president of the United States, just name calling people right out and not having some aspect of consideration and just some decency. So then everybody got kind of plugged into that aspect of, of who they were. So I think that just the languaging around how we relate to each other is the first step to have openness for curiosity. Yeah, curiosity is a powerful thing. You know, when when curiosity is absent in science, when curiosity is absent in academia, when it's absence in politics, it does tend to breed something the opposite, which seems like something stagnant, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Curiosity seems like the key to the whole picture. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it, it's uh, dismiss. I don't want to dismiss how hard it is when it's someone close to us. Yeah. Even gloating, you know, like when people gloat with with victories, whatever it is, policy victories, election victories. I haven't spoken to my mom or stepdad in in a week, and I'm pretty proud of myself, you know, on that. Just not that I, that I haven't spoken to him. Just the aspect of that that I'm not there to to gloat. So I just think that that openness and curiosity as human beings, if we lose sight of that, that's where I start to feel really sad with inside of myself. Cause I know that in the work that I do, that's the number one thing that I work with people and couples is you've got to have that curiosity and interest of the other person's world and their emotions. Yeah. One of the most exciting things I have heard about recently is that in 2016, some organizers really, saw that they needed to go into rural America and start building coalitions. These are sort of progressive liberal activists and organizers and all around the country, they were connecting with and supporting organizations that could build bridges because the gloating thing, you know, it's only going to be a short lived high because these, you know, 50% of the voters didn't get what they wanted. That They're not going anywhere. Just like we didn't go anywhere. We were, sorely disappointed four years ago and shocked and confused and we didn't go anywhere. We're still here. And so it's really hard to celebrate an election when half of the people wanted something different. Like that, that just feels like a dead end, a dead, a dead political system, as opposed to being able to say, well, what, what can most of us get behind? Right. And we could talk about other political systems in other countries that might be more aligned. But, but here in this country, this organizing, this idea of 
when you go into rural areas and you really truly listen, people are able to share, share their wisdom and perspective. And also they're willing to be influenced because they're actually getting some basic human needs met. They're getting some attention. They're getting the curiosity. They're building relationship. And hearts and minds get changed in those sort of direct ways. That's a lot of on-the-ground legwork. But if, if we all really want community, I don't know. It seems like the thing to do is build coalitions, real human coalitions between people who have different perspectives and values. Because what is writing them all off as racist going to do? It's just going to deepen a divide. Yeah. And the personal story is so important to really hear people's personal story instead of relating to some aspect of a political viewpoint personal stories is we all can relate to a personal story and understand maybe why somebody is thinking this way and voting this way or supporting some ideal of somebody that wants, they want to fulfill their, their desire for their own well-being. The personal story is where we can relate. And I don't think that we're doing that enough. Right. You come from a working class part of the country as do I. And I, what I know is that over the last five decades, rural America has been gutted, right? Where there used to be thriving communities, church and downtown and jobs and, you know, whether that was jobs around manufacturing or farming or forestry or energy. And now most of that is gone. People in rural communities have boarded up shops downtown in a Walmart 20 miles out and family members and friends who are addicted to opioids and in prison and, you know, children who are leaving the community. Like what have, I, this is where I want to take personal responsibility. What have I personally done to marginalize, ignore, dismiss, and discredit the experiences of those people because I'm in, you know, a more urban area or I have a white collar job or I have the privilege I have. What have I done to create the level of disconnection that has created a whole world, you know, a whole support for Trump. What have I done to ignore? And, and what has our country done over the decades to ignore that? So these are some hurting people. Not all of Trump's base are these rural people. There's other constituents and other components, but that's where I focus on because I love this life and these people, especially because they are the stewards of our land and water in many cases, right? If, 60% of the population of our country is living in 4% of the landmass in urban areas. That means the rest of us are living in 96% of the land base in the country. And land-based wisdom is hard to come by. And not suggesting that all those rural people have land-based wisdom, but they're closer to those pieces. And I maybe I'm naive to think this, but I don't think social conservatism is at the top of their agenda. I don't think mm -hmm. they want to suppress people of color and women and gay people. Not that life was good for those people in, in many days of our past. But I think what those people in many cases want is work and community and to be honored and valued for what they care about and believe in. And is it possible to live in a country with, with all of us? Is it possible? I mean, that's what I'd love to see mm. media focus more on is like, what does it look like to be together and care about each other, even though we think and vote differently? 
Yeah, all across the world. I mean, we hear this too. If we can't get along in our own household, how, how are the Palestinian and Israelis going to get along? And, you know, I, I understand that, that analogy and how that's showing itself more and more in our whole country. But right in people's own houses, that to me is, it's disheartening when people that you know day to day and you know their inner world and you do care and love for them, how the vitriol can get so high. And I think that helping people really understand, finding more of this understanding and common ground and their own humility that, that, that they just might not have the right answer all the time, that their truth is only the perspective of where they're looking out of. So I think like that aspect of really understanding right in front of our face, right in front of our, our families. And I, like you're saying, it's just so challenging because I am counseling so many people right now that their heart is really heavy with the divide that they're feeling in these few years that they didn't have before. They're not finding any other commonality that they can bridge. And I understand it. I was in a place of, of some of that, that judgment too, but it also came to me just in terms of your, your huge proponent of conscious dying and the death process. To me, that really is, is huge just in this subject. If, if I want to spend my, my last conversation with my mother arguing about fucking Trump, is that worth it? Is that worth thinking about the the disagreements that we would have in the way that we would talk to each other if I only had a couple months with her. So I use that aspect of if this is going to be one of our last conversations, how do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to be? And I think people lose track of that when they're triggered in demonizing another person. Is that the kind of person you want to be? Just like you said, hate didn't feel good in your body. We have to understand, is this the kind of person that I want to be to convey my disappointment or my sadness or my belief systems? And I don't think that we, we ground ourselves and pause in that moment to have a choice of how we want to be. Yeah. And again, I come back to the privilege piece. I mean, I think there's some people who don't have that choice because they're at such an edge around trauma and oppression and that's not their work, mm. right? That's that I do see it as my work because I have resources. I, I'm I'm very resourced internally and externally. And so I think what what you're saying brings up for me that everyone is needing so much empathy right now, partly because we have a fire hose of information coming at us twenty-four seven and very little opportunity to be actually really heard. And what it, wh- what does that look like? What does that look like to be ambassadors of of deep listening and and not just to be out there alone, but to do it in sort of uh, an organized way, having that be the coalition. And I think that that is what these organizers and activists are doing to bridge is they're actually listening. They're going out and listening. So yeah, a deep empathy is needed on all sides because it's not just, you know, I hold the liberals to some higher standard, you know, like I want them to I want them because I see, I think that they're more privileged, at least white liberals and, you know, just shut up for a minute and listen to what people are saying. They're hurting, they're voting this way because they're getting some attention. They're, um, they're getting 
whether they're going to actually, the actions are going to happen or not, at least the rhetoric is there. So, yeah, but maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's unfair because everyone's needing some empathy and attention. And so how do we, what is the, what are the exercises? What are the templates and models for us to cultivate that in our families and our partnerships and our community to actually listen? Any ideas on that? <laughs> to, to leave people with uh, some action steps? You know, what come, came to mind when you were talking was in the movie uh, Bowling for Columbine, the, the one person that I admired the most was Marilyn Manson, the rock star person, the rock and roll person that's all kind of made up and people would look at him like he's the crazy one. They asked him because supposedly it was his music that they listened to that uh, those uh, teenagers went in and and uh, killed many of their classmates. He said, I wouldn't tell them anything. I'd listen to them. And I thought to myself, man, look at you. Look at you, brother. Like You look like a, a freaking monster and you got the best words right there. Yeah, I'd listen to them, not tell them. And we're not doing enough of that. We see it in our politicians and we can't emulate that. They're not listening to each other. So you said these basic local coalitions, we need to do that. Any other thoughts on how to do that within friends and family? Yeah, I mean, I thought about putting out a call for progressives who also care about rural and small town America, like to start there, to say like, okay, we know we have progressive social values. That's not going to change. We're completely steeped in that. We're anti-racists. We're, you know, we're for the LGBTQ community we're feminists and we want to come together and sit and maybe it's a small circle where we we talk about how much we love our rural communities and what they might be feeling and what they might be needing and what what might be motivating them to vote the way they voted and might be motivating them to feel disappointed about the outcome of the election which can start the sort of building the muscle uh, within our own community so we don't have to sort of get in arguments or fights, but start to build a muscle of curiosity, right? Just starting there, like yeah. to be how to be curious. And then maybe that can grow from there and we can little by little have conversations with the people in our communities. Like, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Because th that really changes hearts and minds when, mm. we, when we listen and when we relate. It's, it's like magic. Yeah. I mean, within families, they don't even, most families don't even do that around subjects that have nothing to do with political affair. So those families even starting off to be even more curious and interested with what their family members are doing and their viewpoints to start off even there to then bridge over into other aspects of, let's say, political leanings and so forth. Because again, the, to me, there's that aspect of how hard that is to the people closest to us that there's so much deep disappointment that I see happening. I thought you would, you know, adult children, what I'm hearing is to their older parents that if they were Trump supporters, it's like, how could you vote this way because of your grandchildren? You know, climate change and other things. I, the amount of disappointment people are having in each other as opposed to the curiosity of what is what is driving people to to have these differences? So we're not spending enough time. We just don't spend enough time in that realm of curiosity. 
Well, and and it's triggering, right? Mm. If we're going to have a conversation with someone who's in deep disagreement, and then we, our our nervous systems start to get really activated, it's that's the part that's okay. intolerable for us, right? It's like what they're saying is triggering us, and then we can't stay in our own seat, as Arnold Mendel would say. You know, if if we can't stay in our own seat when we're activated, then that's not a workable outcome. So then we need to you know, even think back further, which is like, how do we build the capacity in our own selves to handle difference and have empathy and be tolerant of our own nervous system and know when we've had too much and know what we can tolerate, you know, to modulate our own trauma experience. I mean, this is advanced stuff. Self-soothing is a wonderful uh, self-technique to be able to know when you're getting flooded, to be able to know to take care of yourself in the moment, you know, uh, a lot of times I'm working with couples with differentiation and enmeshment. That's a, an aspect for people to work in this realm. I'd like to learn to be differentiated, to be able to stay connected within yourself while you're connected with somebody else. And like you say, watch that activation. So I think that those skills are highly, highly needed right now, the way that people are, are being triggered so much in that. Yeah, and you talked earlier about why do we focus on differences instead of commonalities, and I also think there's a dopamine hit there, right? And it's partly the echo chamber effect. We're on social media, we're scrolling through, we see all this stuff, and then something comes through of like how awful and terrible this, you know, this other party or this other person did, and we get this dopamine hit, you know, and it's an enemy-making dopamine hit. Yeah, it's easier sometimes to choose that, especially because it gets addictive, than to choose the oxytocin, which is softer and more sustained when we say, wow, we have these beautiful things in common or there's this beauty. So we have a little addiction, I think, going on that social media and other media perpetuates in us. Like you're saying, we have a lot of muscle to build, mm-hmm. you know, staying in our own healthy process in our own our own bodies when or trying to find ways to be detached enough or um, distanced enough so that we can be neutral when somebody else is expressing something that we disagree with. These are beautiful skills, Mm -hmm. you know, beautiful practices. I'm sure the Buddhists teach this. I'm sure the Christians, every religion probably teaches some of this. But what what is the secular practice of slowing down, being present, being in our bodies, being neutral, and being curious? Yeah. Recently, uh, our daughter in love, Emma, uh, told us about a movie, old movie, 12 Angry Men, 1950s, right? Henry Fonda. We just saw this about a month ago, and, then, and I never saw it before. I think it's such a apropos movie for right now. You know, it has to do with one person didn't purposely push to change people's minds, but he was open to the curiosity that maybe his belief system wasn't just the only belief system he wanted to be up of, of having curiosity and because of that they started deliberating it was a, a murder trial and they started deliberating in a way that brought curiosity more even when the anger was coming up and they just stayed with it because what they had to stay in the room they had to stay that staying power so to me i i, I highly recommend that movie to people to really understand that aspect of staying with it curiosity, not demonizing others. These are deep skills and we need to be around each other and 
practice them. And I, and I, like you said earlier, you know, it's both the distancing of modern life as well as the distancing that's happened this year due to the pandemic that puts us more and more, you know, having technology between us. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for journeying me with me on this. It's a topic that we all need to really, really go deep in and try to understand. Yeah, I just want to I just want to end by saying that, you know, I don't want to oversimplify or dismiss when people have distress because of close family members and disagreement. That's hard stuff. That's really hard stuff and to give ourselves a break around it. There's no magic bullet, really, and it can cause a lot of anxiety. So, blessings just working through that. Mhm. Yeah. Anything that you want to leave us of what you're interested in and where where we're going to find you and your new ventures what's what's percolating in you yeah i am i am teaching an end of life literacy and paperwork workshop soon it's certainly a deep passion of mine as well as this you know i have a million new passions that are always coming up but this idea of building understanding between people and differences we'll see i'm sort of curious to see how it unfolds as well mm. Well, thank you so much for being alive and doing this work. Thank you too. This is mm. an incredible podcast and mm. what a what an incredible way to reach people. Thank mm. you. Thank you. All right, we'll do it again. Thank you everybody for listening to this episode. I uh, hope it gave you some food for thought and opened some space for you. If this brings up some stuff for you and you want to inquire about my counseling and consulting services, you can contact me through my website, prepo.com. You can also check out my audio guides on my website, and there is more to come. Check me out on Instagram at prepo.toplitsky. Okay, everybody, we all know we got a lot of work to do with uh, mending our relationships in all sorts of ways. We can do it. We need each other. My deep compassion goes out to all of you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Want to Better Your Relationships. And make yourselves a beautiful, beautiful day. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting, PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Thank you.